This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. I'm married to a guy who is the son of a psychiatrist and a licensed marriage and family therapist. And it was when I began dating him that I first started seeing a therapist. I had a sense that I wasn't particularly good at romantic relationships because I never felt comfortable needing anything from anyone. But that therapist made me see the strength and value of being vulnerable. This has been on my mind ahead of Valentine's Day this year. And that's why I am so excited to welcome Katie Morton to the show. Katie is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is a YouTube creator, author, speaker, and psychoeducation facilitator. Her YouTube channel has 1.33 million subscribers and over 120 million views. And she's passionate about translating complex mental health concepts into accessible language for anyone. So before we get to the interview, I wanna make a quick announcement. Our podcast is now on YouTube. Subscribe to the At Her Money channel to get notified when new episodes come out. And make sure to comment and like the episode if you enjoy it. All right, Katie Morton, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. All right, so I first want to start with what was your path to becoming a therapist? To be honest, I have to say that it started when I was probably in middle school, which I know sounds weird. That's not my educational path. That's my interest in psychology. And we had this like intro class in high school that I took. And so when I was growing up, I always took pride in the fact that I was a secret keeper and my friends would come to me with issues and I would block it in a vault. And I loved being able to be part of that process with them, letting them vent and knowing that it wouldn't go anywhere other than me. And then flash forward into high school, they brought in a new course and it was essentially Psych 101, but they just called it Introduction to Psychology. And one of my friends was like, you should take that. It'd be right up your alley. It sounds like all the things you're interested in. And so I signed up, I took it, I fell in love with it, and then I ended up changing my major. I was a music major when I started applying to schools, and then I became a psych and music major, a double major. I went to Pepperdine University for four years, then I took a year off to see what it was like to practice, because I could practice as a quote-unquote counselor, not licensed, just as an assistant essentially to psychologists, LMFTs, and social workers. It was the most fulfilling work I'd ever done. And then I went back and got my master's, took my licensing exam, and here we are. So that was 20 years ago, right? About? Yes. Isn't that crazy? Time flies. It's crazy how time flies. Okay. 
So you and your husband are the co-founders of Happyable Inc., which is an early-stage healthcare startup uh, that delivers professional mental health knowledge to a global audience. What does that mean? What do you guys do? We do a lot of things. YouTube's just a piece of it. I know that's what people see the most is like, oh, you know, online content creation, which I will be truthful is like a huge piece of the work that I do. Like today, I was working on a video script and doing research about eldest daughter syndrome. Very interesting. So that's a big part of what we do. And he does all the filming and editing and stuff like that. But it's also speaking engagements. I love to meet people in person. I love to educate that way, whether it's through, you know, big corporations. I've gone to a lot of different corporate retreats and spoken at those universities. But more recently, I've been doing workshops. And those have been a really cool way to do a deeper dive into a specific topic. I did one recently for the new year about breaking old patterns and learning why most of the time when we set goals, we don't keep them. Why is that? And so that's been another big thing. Obviously, you read my books. So there's just a lot of different pieces to the puzzle of of what we create. And that's why it's, just, it's like a mental health startup, because it's funny that it still says startup because we've been doing it for so long. But there's definitely a bunch of different ways that we educate, that I reach people. And I'm always looking for more ways and on the business side to like diversify, right? You don't want to have all of your eggs in one basket, you want to be spread out. And I also enjoy the flexibility of my job. I think that's part of the reason why I'm a therapist is I got bored at every other job because it felt like Groundhog's Day, you're just doing the same thing. But seeing patients in my practice, they're always having different issues. Everybody's different. It's really cool to watch people grow and change. And then doing what I do now in the more education advocacy forum, it's really cool to find new ways to reach people and new opportunities for business. All right. Well, you seem to be getting a lot done, which is impressive. <laughs> so you have said you credit your husband for showing you the value of YouTube. And I find this, your YouTube stardom and your YouTube library, fascinating. There were three things about it that I found really fascinating. The first is you make therapy accessible. You help people to know how they should find a therapist or interact with their therapist, or also kind of be a therapist. And you talk about issues that many, many millions of people are facing. The other thing is sometimes you yourself are also the subject. You are quite open being very vulnerable about challenges you face or depression or feeling down or whatever it might be. And that's really interesting as well. And then the third part is you have sort of made this a business. So those three things I find completely fascinating. Tell me about your YouTube life. Yeah, so it started, the reason I credit my husband, he was in film production for many years before we even met. And then when we got together, we weren't quite married yet. We'd been dating for maybe two years. And he told me about the power of social media. He'd gone to a conference that they asked him to film and they were talking about the power of YouTube. And at the time, if you remember, this is like 2010, I had just finished graduate school and was earning my hours towards my licensure, making like no money. I was also a sales rep at the same time, you know, working like three jobs. And I was like, I, first of all, I don't have time for this. Second of all, isn't it just cat videos and makeup tutorials, like none of which I'm, you know, can do. 
And he was like, no, people educate because the people that he was filming did fitness educational videos. And he's like, you should educate about at the time I was an eating disorder specialist. I worked in an eating disorder treatment center in Malibu. And he, he was like, you talk about all the time how people don't understand it. Help them understand. And like any good therapist, I was like, no. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be on camera. I don't know how to talk. That's too much attention for me. But he kept persisting and sending me videos of people. And he was like, no, see, people are doing it. And after about six months of him prodding and prodding, I was like, okay, I'll come up with the ideas, but you have to do everything else. I don't know how to post it. I don't understand editing. I don't know what social media is. That was it. And so our YouTube channel was born in December of 2011. And then... I mean, it's really just grown into more than I could have ever imagined. You have to remember back then, I know for some people, they might not even have remembered what YouTube was like then because nobody was really on it, but we couldn't make money off of it. You couldn't even select a thumbnail. It was kind of a very wild, wild west type of space, which was honestly perfect for me, not knowing how to do what I was doing. And and the audience was really caring and compassionate and guided me to, obviously it started out with eating disorder content, but we know nothing happens in a vacuum. So it just kind of grew from there. And with hundred percent honesty, I never thought it'd be a business. I thought it would just be a random hobby that we did, but about probably three or four years into it, I had to quit my full-time job. It became unmanageable. And I still saw patients in my private practice up until honestly around COVID. I still saw patients, but then because of travel and speaking, it became too difficult and honestly unethical. And that's what you've seen more because I don't have patients in private practice, why I've shown more of my own process. Because the tricky thing about being a therapist when you still are seeing clients is putting yourself online in a way that could alter the way they view you because you want therapy to be kind of a clean slate. I don't want them to have any assumptions about me. I want them to feel free to talk about whatever they need to talk about. And if I put my own stuff out there too much, that might impede their growth. And I don't want to do that. So I never did that until I stopped seeing patients in my private practice. And I don't love doing it. I'll be honest. I definitely have like vulnerability hangover. It's not something that we were taught in school how to do. Well, let me just ask you a little bit more on that. You don't love doing it because you feel uncomfortable being vulnerable or you feel uncomfortable being you, the therapist, and showing vulnerability, having already addressed that conflict, that not conflict of interest, but that awkwardness. Yeah, I, I think I don't like doing it because the channel's never been about me. So I don't always want it to be about me. And I think that's part of the discomfort. But then if I'm being honest with myself, another piece of it is the fact that I'm very protective of myself because I got into YouTube as like, quote unquote, adult. I was 24. Uh -huh. <laughs> Hardly an adult. I've got a bunch of kids around that age and <laughs> I can verify for their lack of maturity in many areas. Right. Yeah. But I started it back then and I always knew that I didn't want to give people like ammunition against me because taking feedback from people who don't really know me has always, it's not helpful. And that difficulty with trolls and stuff like that, I've never, that's the one piece of my job that I don't enjoy. And when people, if I give them a little piece of who I am, then I feel like it almost gives them more ammunition. So I've been pretty protective of myself, but there are quite a few things that I've worked through. I mean, I've talked openly over the years about losing my dad when I was 24. And I was in therapy twice a week for years. I talk about the fact that I've been in therapy. I think every good therapist should be in their own therapy. 
if for nothing less than understanding what it's like to be the patient, right? What is it like to fill out that paperwork? What is it like to sit and flip the switch and then you wait and then you go and share stuff with a stranger? Like we need to know what that feels like. And so anyways, I think that's kind of caused me to be a little more reluctant to share too much, but my audience has been really, it's been well received. They're very, they're very warm. I think it also lets them know that just because I'm a therapist doesn't mean that I'm like superhuman and that I don't also struggle. A, a big piece of my time online has helped me to better understand just how valuable that I'm not alone feeling is. And that's been the coolest thing to see, to be truthful, not knowing that it would become what it has become to watch the community grow. And they really, I mean, a lot of them are friends and they get together and they've traveled to see me. And, you know, it's, it's really cool to get to see them develop and grow. And I still keep in touch with what I call like my original three, like the first few viewers that I really remember when I could comment back to every comment and answer every question. Yeah, I mean, I just got a birthday card in October from from one of the original members. We call her Punk. That was her her username. I would hope that the sort of the skew of how many people are sending you thanks or appreciation or whatever it might be, something positive that that completely overwhelms the number who are negative. And also on the positive side are probably thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people or more who don't comment, but do appreciate it. Because I think it is really sort of demystifying in some way about therapy, but then also to see someone like you vulnerable, who you might, if you step back and didn't know anything really about you as a person, you might not think that that would be the case. Yeah, you're correct. The number of positives is definitely much higher than the negatives. I mean, I know why our brain does this, but it tends to focus on the negative things because those are more threatening. And you read those more carefully and then you remember them more precisely and they sting or whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. Okay. As I said, we're coming up on Valentine's Day, but before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Katie Morton, the internet's favorite therapist. Okay, since we are doing this ahead of Valentine's Day, 
I want to talk to you about your role as a marriage and family therapist. So a couple of things. What would you ask someone who is hesitant about couples therapy? How would you get them to be open to that? It's tricky. I mean, the truth about it is, and I want everybody to hear this with as open of a mind as they can, everybody waits too long. So by the time you think, hey, we should be in couples therapy, you probably should have started six months ago. And I mean that with the most love and compassion. I'm married. I understand. It's tricky. Also, there's usually one member that wants to do it more than the other. But I will say that at the very least, going in for a couple of months and just doing thinking of it as almost like a checkup or like we do we do physicals, right, to take care of our, our physical body. We should be doing couples counseling to kind of get a read on our relationship. And the, the beautiful thing about therapy as a couple is that you get the space to speak and ensure that you're heard. And I know some of you might be thinking, but I am heard by my partner. Not always. So often, even myself, like I'll hear my husband say something, but that's going through like 30 filters of our 15 years together and what I already know and what I'm frustrated by or whatever, right? And so often I'm not fully listening. Therapy gives space for that so that each member feels heard. You can learn helpful tools to help you facilitate that at home. And going to therapy also does not mean that there is something wrong with your relationship. It means that you don't want something to go wrong with your relationship because I don't even treat a lot of couples in my private practice when I was practicing because of that fact that they don't come till it's too late. One member usually talks over the other. One is very resistant and almost like shut down. It's a really difficult thing. Like my hat's off to anybody who works with young children and couples because that's a lot of work for a therapist. But I just cannot encourage people to to consider it sooner. So let me ask you, so do you sometimes have a couple come in and you meet with them once and you say, you know what, I am not going to be able to help you because maybe you think they're too far along or they're not really open to it or one of them just really isn't sort of on board? I mean, it depends. I have seen couples, but I have a great referral system. So my private practice in Santa Monica, I had one that shared the suite with me. She specialized in attachment and relationships and marriages, and that's primarily what she did. So if I felt like it was, wasn't something that I could help them with or I thought she'd be a better fit, I would push them out to that. But I did. I mean, I obviously have treated couples. It really just depends on what the issues are, if they're willing to come in, because like I said, there's usually one member that's not as willing. And I've had one couple in particular where the wife kept showing up and the husband wouldn't always show up. And then I couldn't see her because the couple is the patient. And so it, it, it's just tricky. That's why I tell people do it sooner rather than later. And some people are like, but we're just dating. If it's serious, there's nothing to say that you can't benefit from some communication strategies or, uh, you know, just some space. The one thing that I will tell you as a married person that having the space in couples counseling that forces you to talk to your partner in a real way is really helpful. Especially, I know a lot of us have busy jobs. We have children. We're being pulled in 5,000 million different directions. Having that space to really connect is going to be helpful. And if you're both participating, then it can be healing. One of the things I read in your book, Are You Okay?, is the yellow card. So tell us what the yellow card is. Yeah, so there's a thing that we use in couples counseling called the floor technique. And the floor technique is a little, mine's a laminated yellow piece of paper. And on it, it says the floor and the rules of the floor. And 
Obviously, if I say, I'm giving you the floor, I'm introducing you, that means like, take over, you get to speak now. That's exactly what the floor means. So if, let's say I hand it to you, Karen, I'm like, here, take the floor. That means that you get to speak, but you can only speak for yourself. You can't say, my partner thinks this, or he's doing that, or you're only speaking for yourself. Then when you're finished, your partner has to say to you, what I heard you saying is X, Y, Z, and you have to agree. Then once you agree, you hand the floor to them and they do it. And I know this sounds incredibly tedious and a lot of people are like, oh my God, that's like the talking stick and that's so stupid and why do people do this? It's because we don't really listen to each other. We often listen to win because we're trying to win the fight. We want to win the argument. We think that we're, we know more, we have better information or whatever it is. And so we don't actually hear them. And then they don't feel like they've been heard. And then they'll react out of that or vice versa, right? We can do that too. And so the floor really slows down the process and ensures that both members of the couple feel heard and do get their points across without blaming, shaming, and usually what the kind of patterns that we're caught in. What is it that you sometimes see that really gives you optimism about a couple? If they can still have fun, that's a big winner. And I know a lot of people think, but will we have fun? Can you like be goofy, like dance funny to a weird song in your kitchen, goof around, be your silly self. I call it almost like your single self. Like when I live by myself, am I okay doing that stuff in front of my husband? Am I still doing that stuff? So that's a big key indicator. I also will pay attention to how often they talk over one another. If you allow for space for your partner to speak, that's a good indicator. And also intimacy. And I don't just mean sex. I think a lot of people assume, yes, it has to be sex, but I'm talking like loving physical touch. If a couple comes in and the husband or wife puts their hand on their back and lets them go into the room or holds their hand while they talk or puts a hand on their arm, any kind of loving gesture shows that they're still trying to connect. Now, obviously, if one person like pulls away, like, I don't want you doing that, that's a different story. But the fact that if there's welcome, frequent, loving, intimate touch, that's a, that's a key indicator of a healthy relationship. So away from couples therapy, for people who are single and looking to be in a couple, there must be some signs for someone who you think is able to be in a relationship and other signs that sort of tell you, you know, this person's going to have a difficult time. Yeah, I think, I mean, a big part, I think we'd all, if we're honest with ourselves, is if we're working on our our part, if we're able to recognize our faults in relationships, period, because it's not just romantic relationships, there's friendships, there's familial relationships. And it's helpful for us as people in general to look for patterns of things that aren't working for us. And if someone's willing to do that, to actually put in the work, that's that's huge. That's a huge indicator of success in future relationships, especially romantic ones. I also find that people, this is the biggest hang up, and this is an indicator that relationships will be really hard, is if we're not comfortable with any kind of confrontation. If it's hard for us to have a disagreement or a difficult discussion or to get angry, we're going to run into that over and over and over. Friendships, romantic relationships, familiar, every relationship in our life is going to hit that blocker. And if we feel like the only way for a relationship to be healthy in our eyes is for there to be absolutely no conflict, then that means that we are shrinking ourselves to fit that relationship, that we don't feel like we can show up with something that's upsetting and we can't express that. 
that's not going to be good. And so I guess overall, if we want to break it into two camps, like, okay, indicators that we're going to have healthy, happy relationships, those are people that have a great support system already. They have thriving friendships. They do things that they love to do. They, they're feeling very fulfilled and they make time for themselves. And to add someone to that is just that. It's an addition. It's not a must. Mm-hmm. That's key. People who are going to struggle in relationships are people who can't have clear communication. It's hard for them to speak up, right? That fear of conflict, the difficulty in expressing themselves. They have struggled in most of their relationships, maybe because they isolate me, because they're reactive. And the big kicker is they refuse to acknowledge their role. Those are going to be, if I had to put them into two kind of themes or buckets, that's what I would look for, whether we're going to be good or bad in relationships. And you think that with therapy, someone can really address that fear of conflict, let's say, or not wanting to be vulnerable or whatever it might be. 100%. I'm living proof. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I've been in therapy since I was 15. And my family growing up never argued. And it's not that my parents didn't argue. They never did it in front of us. And I always hear this a lot from parents like, oh, but I don't want to argue in front of the kids. I don't want them to think that we're going to get divorced or anything like that. They need to see it. They need to see you have a disagreement. Obviously, things should not get out of hand. There shouldn't be name calling or any abuse. But we should see people, our parents especially, have a disagreement, talk about it, and then come back together. That discourse and then reunification, if you want to call it that, is really helpful and healthy for children. And I didn't grow up with that. My parents tried to keep it separate. And so when I had friendships and then romantic relationships in my life, My whole goal was to not have conflict. And that meant that then they didn't really know who I was. I was just going along with it until inevitably I'd be like, they don't know me anymore. And I'd break up with them (laughs) or the friendship would end, you know? And so therapy can really help you see the patterns in your life. I feel like I always tell my audience, I'm a detective, like being a therapist, kind of like being a detective. You have to be curious, not judgmental. You're not jumping to conclusions. We're seeing what the evidence proves. Right. I do think, though, a resolved conflict is way better than never having had a conflict. Yes, 100%. Although I can see our, you know, I know what you're saying about your parents not wanting the kids to see them fight. My kids, I really believe, would rather see us fight than be affectionate with one another. That is really (laughs) something they absolutely want no part of seeing. All right. So let me just switch gears and talk about this. There is, it seems like, a mental health crisis going on in the United States right now. And I don't know if that is partially the pandemic, partially people just more willing to talk about it. Why do you think this is happening? I think there's a lot of pieces. The pandemic definitely plays a role. To pretend that we weren't all traumatized by that is, that's just false. I think a lot of us, myself included, try to block it out. But remember when we were Cloroxing or like wiping our food? Things were, it was a lot. And it was very overwhelming and we didn't know what to think, what to feel. It was, it was scary. So pandemic definitely affects us and affected children. They were isolated. They didn't get to connect with their peers, learn social cues and things depending on their age, right? They missed out on major events. That's all very traumatizing, very overwhelming. And I believe led to a lot of anxiety-like symptoms and hypervigilance. So that is a huge piece. The second is we are talking about it more. I think that's really great. That's the wonderful thing about the internet. A funny story that I always tell is that when I first started my YouTube channel, remember December of 2011, I also joined Twitter. 
And I remember seeing people that use hashtags surrounding eating disorders because that was my specialty. That's what I was talking about. And I would follow and comment back. And they were like, essentially, who the hell are you? (laughs) Why are you following me? You're a therapist. This is weird. And I was the first therapist to the party. It was, I was a little weird. I, you know, I'm like that weird aunt that nobody wants to hang out with. And so flash forward to now that is a totally different conversation. There's a ton of therapists and other mental health professionals online. It's really grown. And so we are talking about it more. Celebrities are talking about it more. It's really moving in the right direction. And then I think the third piece is the effects of social media. Obviously, there's positives. There's connectivity. I can educate. People are reminded they're not so alone. But the amount of comparing to other people, when I grew up, I grew up without the internet. The only people I could compare myself to, which was plenty, were the people in my school whose parents, you know, we roughly all made around the same amount of money. You live in the same type of community. It's a very small bucket of people. Now you can compare yourself to the world in seconds. And we can also communicate for better or worse. And bullying happens online. I know it was bad enough in middle school for me. So I can't imagine being that much more exposed to it. And it's not even any better for adults. I feel like because we didn't grow up with it, a lot of us don't know how to interact with it properly. And so there can be a lot of negative effects to it. And obviously we saw, was it last year or two years ago now when Facebook was like, yeah, we did know how bad it was. And they got in big trouble for not taking care of people and not realizing the effects that social media can have. And so I think it's kind of those three major components that all blend together to cause this mental health crisis. One of the things you were talking about, the sort of the stigma was I was really surprised and amazed and I thought it was great to see some major athletes like a Simone Biles or Naomi Osaka or Marty Fish talk about their mental health as just as valid a reason as any other kind of injury that wouldn't allow them to play. And back, I don't know how many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, that would have been absolutely a non-starter. Yes. You would have made up some injury, I think. 100%. And they would have blamed it on something else like extreme fatigue or something. And I think that that assists us more in the conversation, right? It moves things forward more. I mean, even celebrity, I remember Adele speaking up about having postpartum depression, and that was a big deal. And a kid Cuddy, who's like a rapper, like real tough, he put himself into treatment because he had thoughts of suicide. And he spoke honestly about it. He's like, I don't want anybody else to feel as alone as I did. And I think that that is a beautiful thing now is that people are taking care of themselves and then speaking about it. And especially celebrities or athletes, those are people that children especially look up to, you know, on the Wheaties boxes when I was growing up and stuff like that. It's like you look up to these people. And I think it's really great that they're sharing their stories because then it makes us feel like, well, I mean, Simone Biles, she's like, she's a badass. And if she's doing this, then I can, I guess I could try therapy. (laughs) (laughs) She can do it. If she could do like a, a double whatever somersault this and land on a four inch bar. Yeah. Yeah. There's pretty much nothing she couldn't do. All right. We're going to have to take a quick break and we will come back with lightning round. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a daily crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. 
Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Well, this has really been a fascinating conversation, a lot of different things to learn here, and I'm happy that we're getting this in for Valentine's Day. But now we're going to go to the lightning round. And uh, the only challenge here is it's just would you rather pick the one first comes to your mind. Okay, you ready? Yes. Ice cream or cookies or cake? It's another would you rather rather. Ooh, cookies. Okay. Full face of makeup or bare face? Oh, bare face. Uh, Spa day or day at the museum? Ooh, spa day. Yoga or meditation? Yoga. And why do you say yoga versus meditation? I'm just curious. I've been practicing yoga forever and it's just one of my favorites. It is a moving meditation. So I see it kind of, it's two in one. (laughs) Both. It's physical and okay. By the way, I tried meditation. I said, I'm really going to give it a go. I did it 180 days in a row. Wow. Hated it every single day. (laughs) Haven't done it since, but uh, that's neither here nor there. All right. Uh, Cognitive behavioral therapy or emotion-focused therapy? Ooh, that's a tough one. I'd probably say cognitive behavioral because I'm a homework girl. Okay. So, and just tell us then what emotional-focused therapy would be instead of the behavior focus. Yeah. So CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy focuses more on like your thoughts than your feelings about it and your behaviors. And we kind of get caught in that loop. And so it helps you identify and kind of stop that cycle. And then emotion-focused therapy, I mean, it's just as helpful and just as effective in its own right. But emotion-focused therapy is more about, just like it sounds, how do you feel about something? Can you identify that feeling? Can you tell me where you're experiencing that in your body? And it moves from there. But I think because I like structure, and because I, I give homework, in, even in my practice, I do more of the CBT slash DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy, which is like a build on top of that. It's just more up my alley. Yeah, it sounded like you were a diligent student at school as well. Okay, gratitude journaling or dream journaling? Ooh, gratitude. Santa Monica, California or Austin, Texas? Oh, Santa Monica. It's got my heart. It's my city. Fiction or nonfiction? Ooh. Fiction. I like to escape. All right. What are you reading? Right now I'm reading a book called, I think it's, I have questions to ask you or I have questions for you. It's a murder mystery. Okay. Uh, A couple bonus questions. What have you changed your mind about in the last year? Ooh, in the last year. I mean, I changed my mind about a lot of things. I feel like I try to be pretty flexible. I guess one thing that I've been like, not proven, like I thought one way or another necessarily, but treatment options when it, especially when it comes to like what I do and like psycho uh, psychotropic medication like antidepressants things like that there's been so much in the past probably 5 years now on psilocybin as treatment for trauma um for depression we're seeing it for anxiety 
And at first I was very, you know, you, you're a little bit suspicious and you're, you're a little bit resistant. Like, "Mm, I don't really know. But the more I've read the research and I have a friend who's working with maps, which is the research facility doing a lot of that, that work, the more excited I am about it. And the more it's kind of proven me almost wrong. This is actually, I think, the path forward. And I believe that there's a lot of those types of things. If anybody has not watched the Netflix, I think it's like a docu-series technically called How to Change Your Mind. I, I cannot recommend it enough. The The gentleman who put that together also wrote a book, This Is Your Brain on Plants. And I just, I find it very interesting. And all of that is, that research has really come a long way and I'm excited to see where it takes us. All right. Now, this is crazy. I've asked that question one other time, and the answer was the same, psilocybin. Really? Yes, I know. I'm quite, quite, quite surprised. Of all the things. I know, of all the things, right? Okay. Last two-part question. What is the best investment you've ever made and the worst? An investment can be a wide definition. Yeah. Best investment I ever made was in my education. I mean, I paid for it forever, so... It was a labor of love, literally, but it gave me so much more opportunity in where, however I wanted to take it. I will never regret doing that. And then probably the worst investment I ever made, probably a couple of my earlier romantic relationships. <laughs> it was like a terrible investment of my time and energy, even some friendships in my 20s. Ugh, you know, cringe. Yeah. <laughs> That was an excellent answer. I have to ask one more. I'm really curious. Are you surprised at where you are in your life right now? Yes. All the time I say to my husband, I'm like, if anybody ever told me that this would be my job, like I got to speak at Penn State last year and they were such a great crowd and it was so much fun. And I hadn't done it in a while because COVID, right? I'd only been, had like two other talks in person. And yeah, sometimes it blows my mind that this is even a job. I mean, it's really cool and I feel really fortunate. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and your honesty and your, and your content. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.